It's that time in the American presidency when we have reached the age of recordings. And our subject this week, Benjamin Harrison, is the first president whose voice we can hear. It sounds like this. As president of the United States, I was president of the first Pan-American Congress in Washington, D.C. So, not very clear at all, but it's a start. This was recorded on an Edison wax cylinder sometime around Harrison's first year in office in 1889. Also in this year, the Coca-Cola Company was created, and the first jukebox went into use in San Francisco. It's the end of the 19th century, and technology and industrialization are reshaping America. And amid all this excitement and the many benefits of innovation, there are also new fears and questions emerging among citizens that presidents have to address about who might be left behind in this process and what in our country might be getting destroyed. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is the 23rd episode of Presidential. I'll resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A state which will live in infamy. Benjamin Harrison was born in Indiana in 1833. He was one of 13 children, and he served as president from 1889 until 1893. So right smack in the middle of Grover Cleveland's two terms. The history books today barely even mention Benjamin Harrison, though. And when they do, the write-ups are usually not too praising. There was one historian I came across who wrote that Harrison would probably have been better liked and better remembered today if he'd at least died a month into office like his grandfather, the ninth president, William Henry Harrison, did. So, the challenge I set for myself for this episode was to find at least a couple of the overlooked ways that Benjamin Harrison did leave an imprint on our country and on the presidency. And personally, I ended up most fascinated by the role that he played in land and wildlife conservation. We'll get to that a bit later in the episode, but first, I decided that the best way to neutralize the assumption that Harrison was just a bore would be to invite a huge Harrison enthusiast to come along with me when I talked with the historian Michelle Kroll at the Library of Congress. And that enthusiast who came along with me is Washington Post opinion columnist Alexandra Petri, who you may remember from our episode about William Henry Harrison and his campaign song. That William Henry Harrison episode was just kind of a teaser for Alex because her real love is Benjamin Harrison. Because basically, I, like, literally this is the highlight of my week because... <laughs> I, like, called my grandparents. I'm like, by the way, guess what I'm getting to see on Friday? It's Benjamin Harrison's papers. And they're like, you're kidding me. We got to tell your aunt. And so we had this, like, family discussion where this is this is so exciting. They're, they're all rooting for this. Uh, Do you want to tell a little bit of just backstory of 
how you and your family are such Benjamin Harrison fans? Well, basically, I think every state has like their one president, except like, if you're a state with it's totally presidentless, like Wisconsin. But Indiana has Benjamin Harrison, or as he likes to be called, General Harrison, because he wasn't all about being the president. And so in Indianapolis, one of the many sites is the Benjamin Harrison house, which is full of such delights as his electrical wiring, and you can see his cane, and you can see his grandfather clock. And he's sort of a local hero. And since half my family on my mom's side are all proud Hoosiers, Benjamin Harrison is also something that they're proud of. Mm -hmm. So I've heard a lot more than I think you expect to at your average family Thanksgiving about like Benjamin Harrison's presidential accomplishments. It turns out he did a lot. National parks and antitrust acts. So I've asked Michelle basically this question for all of the presidents. (laughs) And so maybe I'll just ask you both in the same room what you think it would be like to go on a blind date with Benjamin Harrison. I'll let Alexander start. Oh, gosh. Well, shaking his hand was described as like holding a dead fish wrapped in brown paper. And so I'm not expecting much out of this date. I'm going to be honest. As a young man, his only vices were cigars and cucumbers, which sounds like when you list them together, it it implies something that I don't think it was meant to imply at the time. It's a really bad combo. (laughs) But I think like his father wrote to him being like, I hope you're not eating more of those cucumbers. Because this was back before they had burpless cucumbers and they assumed that you were going to, like your body was basically going to explode if you consumed cucumbers incorrectly. So given that those are his two hobbies, I'm just not sure the date is going anywhere too exciting. Anything to add, Michelle? I actually have been thinking about this. And Harrison strikes me as someone who would be that stereotype of the kind of a person you'd want to bring home to your parents, that he was industrious, he's hardworking, he comes from a distinguished family, he's a lawyer, he doesn't have many vices, <laughs> he doesn't drink, and when he's a young man, he doesn't, he doesn't dance. He's very religious. He's, you know, very uh, all about duty and public service and helping his family out. And to some degree, you know, if if those are qualities that make him a good, you know, sturdy blind date, then he would be great to go out on a date with. Um, Personally, he wouldn't be my first choice. (laughs) (laughs) He's perfect on paper. He's very impressive for your parents. You bring him home, you're like, this man served in the Civil War. He quit his job in the government to serve in the Civil War. And his grandfather was a president and a war hero. And (laughs) I mean, he does in like a lot of the descriptions I've read, though, he really comes off as a stiff. Right. I mean, that seems like the description people give of him. That is the description that comes out quite frequently. And it is used as a political tool, too, that uh, political rival writes to another one of the political rivals that um, he says, you know, he is narrow, unresponsive and oh, so cold. The town is full of of grumblers. Nobody appears to like H, though, of course, many uh, tolerate him for what he can give out. And, you know, then he says something somebody else refers refers to him and says uh, it's like talking to a hitching post to to speak with him. And again, political rival, so you have to take that with a, a slight grain of salt. But that's his reputation, that he's cold, that he's unresponsive, that he's sort of on the boring side. But other people will point out that with his family, he's incredibly loving, that he does he does have dear friends, that he's he he can be a different person. You know, so 
politically and socially, he's not one of these hail fellow, well, well met. You know, he's not a backslapper. He's he's not that kind of a politician. But when you get him within a family circle or with people he's comfortable with, you know, he does generate a lot of of, of respect and friendship and love from from those people. I did find one thing that a, a recollection about Harrison later on that apparently you know loved kids and dogs is the you know the kind of the tagline there that that dogs would follow him home because they just got a sense that he was a dog lover. <laughs> and so there were a couple of stories where back in Indianapolis he'd be going to the law office and he would be kind to some stray dog or give it a nice look or something and the dog would try to follow him into the office. The dog must have thought he was a hitching post. Um, <laughs> which, I guess that's like the fire hydrant of the 19th century. Or just, he just had a nice way about him. Or so, but apparently, you know, he, he got along very well with children and, and animals. Um, maybe just to back up for one second, do you want to just give a bit of a portrait of his early life and like how privileged he grows up and and especially I mean compared to some of these other presidents we've had born in log cabins teaching themselves to read and write right well Harrison he did come from that distinguished family but actually his own circumstances he was he was portrayed later as a kid glove aristocrat which makes you think that he grew up in a mansion and was surrounded by luxuries which actually he wasn't his his father was a farmer the, the son of William Henry Harrison he was a farmer so he he grew up in not luxurious circumstances but enough that he was educated as a boy he went off to college he read law uh, that's actually what the primary career he had was as a lawyer, and that was where he was going to to make most of his income. Um, interestingly enough, though, even though he's a successful lawyer throughout his career, he always feels strapped for cash. So you get a sense of somebody who you know comes from 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 good good background, but never feels that he's getting getting ahead in terms of of, of finances. Do you get the sense with Harrison that so much of what's driving his decisions is just? a sense of duty and like holding up the family name and the sort of expectations that have been put on him? I, I do. You get the sense from, from some of the letters that he writes that that public that that it is public service that's that's driving him uh, to to do good in the world, to to some degree hold up a family legacy as well. And it, it it's both a boon to him because of course people know who the Harrisons are, particularly William Henry Harrison, and everywhere he goes it's the Tippy Canoe and Tyler Two song or they're bringing out something. But then again it's 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 sort of a challenge for him because if you want to be your own person and not just be known as as the the grandson of the president, then it's hard to mark your own territory and 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 stand out on your own. It's like, well, my grandfather was the president, so I guess my options are be president, and I hope I do as good of a job, or just go another way. Yeah, <laughs> a totally another way. Well, he is kind of touchy about his name, for one thing. Some of some people thought he was William Henry Harrison, and they thought he was Benjamin Franklin Harrison. And he even <laughs> and and he even and he doesn't have a middle name, but he writes to somebody um, the, the the people who published the Indianapolis Journal, and it keeps being addressed to the Honorable B. F. Harrison. He says, "Will you please correct the address? I do not like to have it appear that my nearest neighbors and friends are so unfamiliar with my name." But then he says at a a political rally, um, claiming credit on the fame or good deeds of those who preceded one reminded him a good deal of the remark relative to that very useful vegetable, the potato, the best part of which lies underground. So, (laughs) so, you know, he did have the opportunity to, to try to... Take on the family name front and center, make a joke about it, and then. 
yes, everyone will now have to remember that the best part of the potato is underground, just like once. Yeah. Once <laughs> that useful vegetable, the potato. Right. <laughs> and, and they called them a stick in the mud. Speaking of, I was like stacking up their campaign songs and they had, I mean, the best campaign song of all time is, of course, Tibby Canoe and Tyler too. But Benjamin Harrison's was just, what's the matter with Harrison? He's all right. <laughs> Which sort of a letdown. <laughs> Benjamin Harrison gets the Republican presidential nomination in 1888, and many at the time think that Harrison got the nomination because he has this family reputation that they can leverage. During the campaign, the political cartoons of the time really zero in on this idea that Harrison is just dwarfed by the family legacy. Of course, the 20th century has wonderful editorial cartoons and political cartoons, but the 19th century, boy, they have some really, really good ones. And they're, they're, they're somewhat vicious, too. So when you think politics today is vicious in terms of personal <laughs> attacks and, and cartooning, it, it really has nothing on the previous centuries. And in most of the, the editorial cartoons that you see, Benjamin Harrison's got this gigantic fur hat on. And it's, it's often used by the Democrats as a way of he's not big enough to fill his grandfather's hat. And, and Harrison himself was only about 5'6", so he is a, on the shorter side of our presidents. So he, he's always portrayed as this tiny little guy with this gigantic big hat that's almost swamping him. And that's the image that re- repeats over and over and over again in these political cartoons, is this teeny little guy who's not quite measuring up to the family ancestry. But Benjamin Harrison manages to win the election, and he bumps Grover Cleveland from the White House. And though some of the campaign tactics and the coverage may have been nasty, this was still a time when the two candidates themselves mostly stayed out of the fray. One thing that strikes me about both of of them is that they're just very decent individuals. And so apparently in 1889, when they were going up to to Harrison's inauguration, it was bad weather and Cleveland stood there with the umbrella over his head, over, over Harrison's head. I don't get a lot of political animosity between the two of them. They were both men who saw that they were doing their duty. Neither one of them had a burning passion to be president. What does it tell us about the country at the time and what Americans want in their president and what they're going through, that there's Cleveland and then Harrison and then Cleveland. Well, the what's going on at the time, and the, the thing to remember is that with Cleveland and Harrison and not so much with Cleveland's second administration, but at least in, in 84 and, and 88, the, the margins by which these men win are very, very small. And in fact, in the 88 election, Cleveland actually won the popular vote, but Harrison won the Electoral College. So, you know, this is a time period where parties are fairly evenly balanced in in terms of how many voters that they tend to to get. And it tends to be a couple of swing states that if you lose New York, okay, then you've lost the presidency. We're getting third parties in here as well. So there's the rise of of the populace. Yeah. Yeah. So we're starting to get farmers alliances and more labor unions. So there it's not just Republicans and Democrats necessarily. Now you've got other parties that are challenging the agenda or bringing up issues that hadn't been there before. And this is also a time period that we're not really seeing incredibly strong presidents, to be honest. Well, Garfield didn't have much of a chance because he was only there for a few months, really. But 
MacArthur's not an activist president, and Cleveland is not an activist president. So you don't get people who are really taking the reins of the presidency and running with it in the way that when we get to Theodore Roosevelt, he runs down the block with it. You know, um, he's a very energetic man um, and and believes in a different kind of leadership. But with Harrison, we do see a bit more of an active presidency than we have been lately, right? I mean, maybe just a hint, at least, of a precursor to what we'll see with Teddy. Um, So what's your sense of what Harrison thought presidential leadership should look like? Well, I mean, he was part of the Republican Party that, that, uh, that agreed with more government intervention and activism. So when you look at the 51st Congress, it accomplishes quite a lot, and he signs those bills. So unlike his predecessor, Grover Cleveland, who vetoed a lot of things that he didn't agree with or thought were fiscally irresponsible, Harrison is clearly going along with the Pension Acts, for example, and the Sherman Antitrust Act and some of these other things. So I think that he probably felt that his role was um, was a more active role role. And, you know, he had been in the Senate, so he understood the legislative process. James Blaine, the Secretary of State, was also ill for a lot of his tenure. And so Harrison was very active in in foreign affairs. So I think he maybe was more of a model of what we think about the president doing. Now, whether he was successful at that or not. He didn't get that much headway made with Congress on African-American civil rights, but he did deliver an annual message where he was like, so what are you doing about voting rights? Seems like people say, leave it to the local communities and they're not doing a lot of movement or he says um, if it is said that these communities must work out this problem for themselves we have a right to ask whether they are at work upon it do they suggest any solutions when and under what condition is the black man to have a free ballot when is he in fact to have those full civil rights which have so long been his in law i earnestly invoke the attention of congress to the consideration of such measures within its well-defined constitutional powers as will secure to all our people a free exercise of the right of suffrage and every other civil right under the Constitution and laws of the United States. So he was doing his best. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, as, as, you, as you said, he doesn't, he doesn't make a lot of headway because when you're looking at the grander context of this time period, race relations are, are just getting worse and worse, particularly for African Americans. They're losing civil rights that they'd gained after the Civil War. The racial violence just continues to escalate. And so for African Americans, you know, the situation has not been improving as the century wore on. But but Harrison was was in favor of of trying to give education to African Americans and give them a right to vote and you know a right to participate. Partially, you remember he's a Civil War veteran too, so he's seen what what the racial situation was like and the effects of slavery. And he was somebody for whom that made an impression on him. And the only way for African Americans to be able to advance and, and progress in the United States was to have education, to be able to participate, and that was increasingly being denied. To 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 them. One notable thing Harrison does is he includes Frederick Douglass, who at the time is by far the nation's most prominent black leader. He includes him in his administration by appointing Douglass as the minister to Haiti. In terms of monetary issues, Harrison supports a bill for a very high tax on imported goods, and he also supports the Silver Purchase Act which would basically have the government buy up silver out west and start basing part of the U.S. currency on silver. We're going to talk more about some of these monetary issues in the McKinley episode, 
because this is seen in part as what triggers the financial panic of 1893. There are also a couple things Harrison does that start to lay a foundation for what we'll see really come to fruition in Teddy Roosevelt's administration. And one of those things is that Harrison signs into law the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is essentially what creates a precedent and a platform for the trust busting that we'll see in the early 20th century under TR. Another thing that's famously associated with Teddy, but that we do see some seeds of actually here in the Harrison administration, is support for the West and for conservation. Harrison admits six Western states into the Union during his presidency. North and South Dakota, Montana, Washington, Idaho, Wyoming. More states than have been admitted under any other president other than George Washington. On top of that, Harrison signs the Forest Reserve Act, which turns 13 million acres of land into reserves, and these are what then become what we now know as the National Forests. He also authorized the creation of our second, third, and fourth national parks, one of which was Yosemite. And to top it all off, we're going to now explore in some depth another very interesting conservation story that comes out of Harrison's time in office. I'm joined in the studio by Will Gartshore, who leads government work on wildlife issues for the World Wildlife Fund. It's great to have you here, Will. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking. So you're here because Benjamin Harrison got into an interesting international dispute during his administration that involved fur seals Mm -hmm. in the Bering Sea. I want to ask you sort of the details (laughs) of what happened. As I understand it, um, there were fur seals in this water between Russia and Alaska, and Benjamin Harrison wants to protect these seals because Mm -hmm. they're being overly fished, um, and he's worried about their extinction. Mm -hmm. Um, And he gets gets into sort of a fight with Great Britain and Canada over whether there should be fishing of these seals allowed in the open seas. Correct. Is that, that's the accurate yeah, <laughs> I mean, version I think of it? It's one of the interesting sort of after effects, I guess, of the purchase of Alaska from Russia uh, in the mid-1800s, where the U.S. Um, got jurisdiction not over, and not just over the landmass of Alaska, but all those islands in the Bering Sea, including uh, a group of islands called the Pribilof Islands, which are home to 50% of the, the breeding fur seal colonies um, in, in the Bering Sea region uh, and are responsible or were responsible for something like 80% of the production of fur seal skins, uh, an industry that was kind of ramping up over the course of the 19th century. Um, and so you had the U.S. with these onshore colonies, rookeries of, of fur seals. Russia had some as well, though smaller. Uh, and then you had Great Britain slash Canada, which, of course, at the time, you know, they weren't entirely independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't have any onshore uh, uh, fur seal colonies. But most of the um, the fur seal kind of uh, the furry in- industry was um, in London. Uh, and so they were trying to harvest seals in the open water. Um, and the U.S. fought back against this, saying we have jurisdiction over these waters as well as these islands, not just the three-mile limit offshore, which was recognized, but out into the open seas. And part of the reason that they pushed hard on this was they recognized that the open sea um, hunting of the seals was having a negative impact on the populations. And do you have a sense of why Harrison cared? 
Well, I think, you know, as was the case with a lot of early conservation efforts, it was a commercial interest, right? You were talking about an industry. And so the the Americans recognized that this was a resource that they were managing that because of, uh, you know, the sort of tragedy of the commons, others were coming and harvesting and leading to an overall decline. And everyone in the end, you know, you're, everyone was going to lose out. And because the U.S. was managing these rookeries where most of the harvesting was happening, they're the ones who had um, the conservation kind of spark. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was in, a lar- in large part inspired by the fact that they were losing revenue, right? Um, but you wanted a sustainable population so that they could keep a sustainable economy, even if they weren't using those words at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they recognized a need for an international agreement to manage this population. And it's interesting because Harrison was ultimately unsuccessful in getting that in place, right? There was an international arbitration. Right. So what happened? Well, or so, didn't end up happening. <laughs> right. And so it, it sort of got thrown into the international arena. You had, at that point, three slash four countries involved, depending on how you define Canada mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and so it went to an international arbitration panel of other countries, and they ultimately decided in favor of Great Britain. Um, saying that open water sealing could continue. They did extend the protection uh, from like three miles to 60 miles off of the islands, but that wasn't sufficient because the the seals were foraging much further. Mm -hmm. And so from like through the 1880s, 1890s, you see a precipitous decline in the seal populations. Um, And it was then in the first part of the 20th century, initially under the Roosevelt administration, uh, where they negotiated a convention um, called the Northern Pacific Fur Seal Convention, um, which then was signed and ratified under the Taft administration. And the convention they ended up ratifying in 1911 was really probably the first international treaty on wildlife conservation, when you think about it. Um, And so that, that derives from the Harrison administration's initial efforts to say we need to either unilaterally or multilaterally solve this problem. It took 20 years to get the outcome he was looking for, but uh, in the end it worked. Um, And it was an interesting uh, innovation in international law that was developing at the time. Do you know, is is he the first president we've seen or we've had who made an effort to protect a particular species? As far as I can tell, yes. It it really was like specifically targeted towards this one species. Um, the only um, earlier uh, example I can find is sort of a negative example in that there was legislation passed um, a, a decade earlier under the Grant administration to try and protect uh, the American bison. But Grant pocket vetoed it because his military yeah. advisors saw you know, extirpating the bison as a military strategy against the Native American tribes that they were fighting in the West. And so he um, didn't sign it, and ultimately that law did not pass into effect. So the only example I can find prior (laughs) is is, is not so great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as far as like actively trying to conserve a species, even if there's a commercial component to it, um, yeah, it it is uh, Benjamin Harrison, I think. And then you see afterwards under the McKinley administration, you get uh, the Lacey Act. Uh, in 1900, which was to prevent illegal trade of um, wildlife that had been poached in other states Mm. um, initially, and then ultimately in other countries. And that law, the Lacey Act, which has been amended several times since, is the most important and powerful law we have on the books now 
to combat wildlife trafficking, which, of course, has become a huge issue with elephant and rhino poaching, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, which the current administration has really focused on. And from that point on, then you see passage of, uh, in 1966, they pass a fur seal act. Obviously, within a decade, you've got the Endangered Species Act. You've got the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the early 70s, uh, which sort of overtakes these previous agreements and becomes the um, the regime protecting mammals like fur seals. But President Nixon, you know, President Johnson, President Reagan signs into law the African Elephant Conservation Act. Uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush puts in effect the first unilateral ban on importation of ivory into the United States when you've got uh, the poaching crisis of elephants in the 80s. And then you see laws on tigers, um, great apes, marine turtles signed in the, uh, the 90s and 2000s. And then President Obama has recently um, put forward an executive order to combat wildlife trafficking. And then just last week, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service under this current administration put out um, a, uh, a ban, a near total ban on commerce uh, and ivory in the U.S. And right now, and what's interesting is that um, it was the Secretary of State uh, under the Roosevelt administration who negotiated this treaty on the, on the fur seals, right? It became a, a foreign policy priority. And right now, Secretary Kerry is in China talking to the Chinese as part of the strategic and economic dialogue on how to curtail ivory trafficking. So you can sort of trace all of these efforts around international negotiations to protect species back to these initial efforts kind of using international law for wildlife conservation that came out of the Harrison administration. Hmm. What's so fascinating to me is to sort of see this moment where the purview of responsibility for a president seems to shift in Mm -hmm. this direction where that becomes part of what um, a president would think of as his presidential responsibility is to protect and conserve. So I wanted to ask you what this might tell us about how attitudes were changing in the country at the time toward conservation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is a time where industrialization is picking up. Right. And so a lot of, you know, some of the activism that's starting is coming in response to the rise of industrialization. Right. And technology where you, you see the impact that the popul- the human population can have on nature in a much more extreme fashion, right? I think the rise of, you know, locomotives and the kinds of weaponry you see and where folks are are saying, all right, we can really wipe out a species, um, especially if we put our minds to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what what are the sort of follow-on impacts of that? Um, And in this case, because there was that sense of, oh, wait, but this is also a commercially valuable species and we can't manufacture more. We're reliant on a healthy population. Like that first sort of dawning of in order for us to have sustainable economies, we need to actually take a conservation mindset in terms of species management, you know, and how we harvest. The, the, the seas in this case are not boundless. It is around this time that there are also machines all of a sudden who can make the process of, you know, turning an animal skin and fur into clothing. Yep. A lot faster. They can sell these items more cheaply than they ever have before. Process them at a greater volume than ever before. Mm-hmm. And you see a um, an industry start springing up in the U.S. I think initially it was in St. Louis, and I think ended up in South Carolina. But it was sort of a monopoly company around turning these Pribilof Island harvested fur seals into furs, and that persisted through something like the 1970s. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how in, uh, the industrialization and the technology helps drive how quickly you can wipe out a species, right? Yeah. I did see that um, 
around this time too, right at the end of the 19th century, the Autobahn Society was starting to form Mm -hmm. because of women in Boston who were sort of trying to build efforts to discourage other women from buying hats that had bird feathers in them. So it does seem like there's, there's some sort of grassroots efforts beginning around um, the moral component. Right. Well, and you look at, if you think of conservation more broadly and John Muir and, you know, all that movement around the national parks, I mean, it's all coming out of that same period. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the West, obviously, the fact that more people, and this is another byproduct of technology, right? The, The railways that get built in the middle part of the 19th century get more people out there and they see how beautiful their country is. And then for some people, they think, oh, well, that's great. I can exploit that. And others think I need to protect that because right. how amazing is this planet? And so that conservation movement writ large, uh, not just wildlife, but national parks and forests and all that really starts ramping up right around this time. Usually we look to Teddy Roosevelt as right. one of the first president who made really significant strides. But a lot of it seems to have been set in motion, yeah. at least under Harrison. It puts Teddy in a different light because then it's not just force of personality that he's bringing these issues to the people and he convinces everyone to care about them. But if they've been put out there and, and debated and, and the ground is already laid, then he becomes right. a bit of a product of the movement versus sort of the originator of this Genesis idea. Yeah. Of, yeah, He gets to ride the foundation that's been right. built a bit. And um, that's a fascinating way to, to kind of look at him. Now, as you already know from last week's double Grover Cleveland spoiler episode, Harrison does not win a second term. After four years, he is out, and Cleveland comes back in to take over the presidency. But one thing we haven't talked about yet in this episode is Harrison's marriage. And this is relevant because his wife, Caroline Scott, she dies two weeks before what might have been Harrison's re-election. She dies of tuberculosis. Almost this entire quite large scrapbook are various telegrams and letters that are being sent to the family because of her death. And so, for example, you know, the first one is is Queen Victoria. Oh. And... Uh, poor Queen Victoria, she has to keep sending these things. She's had to send telegrams to the widow Mary Lincoln and Lucretia Garfield, and now the president's wife has died. And also, this is just one of the culminating tragedies of Harrison's official political family, because unfortunately they kept meeting with disaster, that people kept dying. Um, The Secretary of the Navy, he had a, a terrible tragedy in that his house was consumed by a fire and his wife and his daughter were killed. And Secretary Blaine, if I'm remembering correctly, Secretary of State, uh, two of his children die within a couple of months of one another. So it's been a rather unlucky administration for people in the Harris administration. And of course, with him, it just continues to go. So, so yes, unfortunately, Harrison loses his wife of, what is it, almost 40 years um, since they had been married very young. And, and he tells people when, when they send condolences, both for the loss of his wife and for the loss of the presidency, because he doesn't win. He doesn't win in 92. He says, you know, I've scarcely even thought about the presidency. I feel like I've been in a prison here anyway. I'm not really suited to public, to, to public office. I don't have that correct temperament. And for me, 
the loss of the presidency is is nothing compared with the loss of the wife. And he writes to one of his cousins, I think it is, and says, you know, in in March of 1893, when they've gotten back to Indianapolis, he said, you know, this was supposed to be such a happy time if we had had an unbroken household. And now everything reminds me of my loss. So, you know, this is something he really did. He really did love his, his wife very deeply. But but, the, yeah. but <laughs> then he he also he had he was very close with his wife's niece, uh, Mary Dimmock. And you can guess where this is going. Harrison eventually ends up marrying the niece, or well, technically she's a first cousin of his wife, but she's a lot younger, so they kind of refer to her as a niece. And I know you're probably like, are you kidding? You're not going to talk more about. Harrison marrying this young relative, but eh, you know, Google it. I'd rather end this episode with a couple other details, like the fact that Harrison had two opossums in the White House named Mr. Protection and Mr. Reciprocity, and he also had a goat named Old Whiskers, which he once chased down Pennsylvania Avenue after it escaped. Now, another interesting little detail that relates to the conservation efforts is that Harrison went to visit Yosemite three times, which was quite a trip in those days. And of course, what would a presidential podcast episode ending be without a poignant quote from him? Maybe one like, No other people have a government more worthy of their respect and love or a land so magnificent in extent. Or this bonus quote, great lives never go out, they go on. Many thanks to everyone who appeared in the episode this week. Alexandra Petri of the Washington Post, Michelle Kroll of the Library of Congress, and Will Gartshore of the World Wildlife Fund. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner, and you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, at presidential underscore WP. And I actually haven't mentioned it before, but we do have a newsletter where we throw in some details about the episode each week, and uh, you can sign up for it if you're interested by going to washingtonpost.com slash leadership and looking for the newsletter sign up. All right, well, next week, we'll be talking about the election of William McKinley with Karl Rove, and we will also be talking about McKinley's assassination and the rise of the modern Secret Service. Thanks for listening, and uh, we're in the second half of Presidential. When you're looking at 19th century collections, do you find a lot of pressed vegetation, (laughs) and you find a lot of hair. There's hair everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust. Shameful and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. 
It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional. Or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.